page 73 in the Black Bibles in front of you, and follow along, or however you'd like to, to follow. I think it's, oh, I do think it's good to look at, at the Word, even if it's on your phone, so that you can follow along. And we're going to read these first 17 verses from Exodus chapter 20, and then uh, discuss them together today. Page 73 or Exodus chapter 20. And here, here's what it says there. God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his maidservant or manservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God. May it add a blessing to it and give us insight as we try to unpack it this morning. I've been thinking about the power of words a lot the past couple of weeks, how amazing it is in terms of the way they shape who we are or how we perceive ourselves and even the world around us, how we shape others according to it as well. When we started reading through the Bible, we opened up to Genesis chapter 1. And the first thing you read in Genesis 1 is that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he saw that the earth was formless and void, and yet the Spirit of God was there. So there's kind of this sense of hopelessness and chaos and emptiness, yet there's the potential for something happening. God's Spirit is present. And the first thing that happens, the creative force, he says, let, he says he, in the beginning, created the earth, let there be light, and there was light. So with the spoken word, God brought something structure and order and hope and forward motion just through speaking his word. Now, he makes us in his image, and we're given the power of speech as well. And although we cannot have the same creative force, you know, like I was speaking at Liberty Bible on Friday about a similar topic, and I just said, let there be Chipotle. You know, that'd be awesome. If, wouldn't it be cool if all of a sudden that appeared? I don't have that kind of power, and yet my words uh, have significant power and shape people. The words you've heard, okay, that you will never forget on some level, shape you, who you are. And part of being made in God's image is having the power of speech. Right there in Genesis 1 and 2, then after God creates Genesis 3, enter Satan in the form of the serpent, and he whispers. He uses words 
to begin with, to start casting doubt about God's goodness. Did God really say you couldn't do all this? So here's a garden uh, in the biblical narrative. There's access to all kinds of, of great things. You know, essential oils are blooming everywhere and whatever else is going on, everything's organic and, you know, before there was even the term. And, and there's this one thing, you know, God says don't do this because there's tremendous freedom, but it has some restrictions here, and that's what Satan attacks. Don't look at all the good things that you have. Here's this one thing you can't do. And he whispers with words to focus on that. And as you know, Adam and Eve listen, and they partake of the fruit, and everything goes awry. So you have that creation narrative, but then the fall comes, and all this brokenness, all the hurt, all the chaos, broken elbows, death, that's a result of what happened there at the beginning because they were listening to words and they were listening to the wrong voice. And so here we come as we've been reading this narrative, you know, God makes some promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Eventually they end up in Egypt and there's a famine and Joseph rises to a place of prominence as we heard last week. And his people moved there, 70 of them. And then after several hundred years, they've multiplied to about 600,000 men. And nobody remembers anymore what Joseph did. And these people serve as foreigners a threat. So they're enslaved. And you know the story. They begin to uh, oppress the Israelites. And God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who has a unique storyline as well. But he becomes the mouthpiece to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh won't listen you know, God alternatively hardens his heart and he hardens his own heart and there's some interesting things happening there. But at the end of the day, he finally, after plagues, says, okay, fine, go worship your God. And they're out into the wilderness and God performs amazing miracles. You know, the sea is parted and the Egyptians are swallowed up and we read part of this song earlier. And now we get to this point where Moses goes up to the mountain and here, as we open up Exodus chapter 20, God is speaking words. He's having words with God. We think of these as the Ten Commandments but they're, they're words, the words of God, giving order and structure. And I wanted to think just first about God's placement, intentional placement of these words, these commandments, and the structure, what that says about how we're to receive them, and then do a little deeper dive on one of them just, just briefly with you. So God has no empty words here. He knows the power of these words, and he's speaking these words to them. And one thing that we see right at the beginning is that grace precedes demand. And this is something we need to know as we read throughout the Bible. Uh, a lot of people open up the Old Testament and say, oh, demand, law, harsh, God, angry, mean, judgment, die, <laughs> that kind of stuff too. But there's a lot of grace in the Old Testament. In fact, the whole storyline begins with God's gracious movement. We've just said that man fell. What happens afterwards? We try to cover ourselves up. It's God who provides for them from the beginning. He's always, he, he gave them a beautiful garden. That's grace. His action precedes ours. You know, later, a lot later in what we call redemptive history from Exodus chapter 20, thousands of years later when the New Testament would be written, you know, John would say something like this um, as well, that we love him because he first loved us. Grace precedes demand. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. But the reason we love him is because he's moved in our hearts as well. So God's grace, his goodness, his mercy to us comes before any demand. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. 
out of the land of slavery. That's the context for giving these commands. I have rescued you. I did something. And now, here's some commands. Here's some things to follow. And as we see, since we're going in, the, in this whole, you know, redemptive flow again, we're not going from bondage to bondage, right? In Egypt, there was bondage. He's getting them freed from that. So he's giving them instructions about what it looks like to live a life of freedom. He's not leading from bondage to more bondage. He's leading from bondage to freedom. And freedom, as we've seen, always has boundaries. That's another thing to consider. This is what it looks like to live well within the boundaries. Now remember again, he created us. He knows how we function. He understands what's best, like, unlike anybody else. So the presumption here, the backdrop is, I've created you, and this is how you live well. This is how you flourish. If you obey these things, and there's a lot of blessings attached to this, it's, you know, it's, it's the way I've designed you. This is how you function. Change your oil every three to 5,000 miles. If you don't, blown head gasket. And you can try it out, you know, and see how it works otherwise, but there's going to be some consequences. That's the presumption here behind these words or these commandments. You know, when I worked at Teen Challenge years ago, which was a ministry for men struggling with drug addictions, every now and then uh, a man would say something that was very understandable, and I, I, it made sense to me. Um, and that was that, hey, Mark, this is great that you're, hit, you know, you're, you're coming here and doing whatever you're doing, but you really have nothing to say to us because you've never struggled with addiction. And because of that, all your words are completely invalid. I mean, you don't know what it's like to wrestle with this temptation or have the brokenness. And I, I, I took those words to heart, and they were very challenging for me. So I, I went to my program director, Diaz McKenzie was his name, who was a former addict, and I said, I don't know what to do because... I'm hearing these words are dismissing what, not everybody, but some people in particular said, you have nothing of value to, to I'm not going to listen to you. And I said, I can understand this perspective. And Dias said, Mark, you know what? These guys know what it's like to live in brokenness. What they don't know is what it's like to have a, an actual functional family, how to love their spouses, how to speak the truth generally and everything. That's what they're trying to learn. They don't need to learn from you how to be addicted. They need to learn from you how to live a healthy, functional life. You do have something to offer. Now, I know, I've got some dysfunctionality too. But on, on the spectrum, you know, I wasn't in the program. I had some measure of okayness going on. And, and that was really actually quite helpful for me because I thought, okay, I do have something to offer. I understand and I could validate them and say, you're right. There are some things I will never understand. And I cannot speak at all to this area. But there are some things I do have to offer now, when, when this comes to us, too, it's almost as if God's saying, I am giving to this brand new people who I'm shaping after my image a sense of what it looks like to function well because previously they hadn't been spelled out. So they, they need that. They, he's giving them something that says, this is what it looks like. Live within these boundaries and you'll really experience some freedom. I've been talking with one of my colleagues because I teach at a school as well about social media and uh, she's done a lot of recent research. She's really an interesting person, too. And I've asked her, just as she's been teaching for about 
uh, 15 years or so now, if she's seen a difference in students now versus 15 years ago, and she argues yes, and she actually has a long PowerPoint presentation with studies kind of showing the cognitive changes that access to all this information has on the mind of, you know, the whole culture, but especially kids who are being shaped by it as well. I mean, the barrage and the assault of information that is coming, the access that ha we have to it, there's really, it's, there's no boundaries to it. So we have all this freedom, you know, in this, this is amazing. Like, look what we have access to, but there's no boundaries to it. And I can tell you as a parent, the effort put into putting boundaries in there is absolutely exhausting. And it's never-ending. And it's, it, sometimes you just want to throw everything into the ocean. And there's lots of good that can come from it. But there is a concern uh, about access. And how do you... And so as parents, of course, if you have a heart for this, you want to say, here's some boundaries. Not because we hate you, although that can be how it's received sometimes, but because we want you to be able to focus on what's actually in front of you. You know, those kind of things. We feel like we have some insight and collective knowledge and wisdom about how we can shepherd a heart. And that, so there's a lot we can say about that, but just cultural relevance with respect to the idea of boundaries and how we grapple with this. Is this the first thing we see when we wake up and the last thing when we go to bed? And you know how hard it is for adults to put boundaries on themselves? What about children as well to have this access? And this is a huge, huge thing that we need to dialogue with and consider, but freedom always has boundaries. And then the last observation is that God's commands are relational in nature. I mean, this is built on somebody who has called people into relationship with him. You are going to be my people. In fact, if you have Exodus open and you look at 19 chapter 6, he reminds them again, or actually in verse 4, uh, 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Now, that language of treasured possession isn't sort of stalking creeper type thing, like, you're mine, or something. But it is sort of the, he said he's a jealous God, it's marriage language. You're my bride. I've set my affection on you, and you're the one that I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue in relationship. That's, that's the context for these. And then the commands he gives, the first four are vertical in relationship. Here's what it looks like to be in relationship with me as your God. And then the next ones that come, the, fall, the, the six that follow, are horizontal. Here's what it looks like to be in relationship with each other. And they're summed up by Jesus, right? And the entire Bible message is summed up. Love God, that's a relationship phrase. And love others, that's relational as well. So these commands are not just like thrown out there. These words are not empty. They, 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 they have value and they have relationship in mind. They've got freedom in mind. They have grace at the very heart of them. And I just want to say that because when you read these, if you don't have that sort of context, it can come across very differently. It's confining. 
as mean, as harsh, as threatening. But that's not, that's not the context for them. Now, with that in mind, I want to take a look at just one command. And I've talked about this before, but I was thinking, which one do I want to dialogue with? And it's, it's sort of one that's kind of a bridge in between the two as well. So just some, maybe some refresher thoughts or some recalibration for us as well. Um, this is the, the commandment, the fourth commandment that says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor any animal or your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now imagine for a second if you were told by your employer that you have to take 52 days off every single year. I mean, when you're coming to the terms of your employment, it says, hey, 52 days off. It's mandatory. And on those days, I want you to just relax. You know, take it easy. Live and do things in community with other people. Linger in conversation. Share a meal. Laugh a lot. Hey, nap. You know, get some rest. On that day, sing, learn, pray, celebrate. Think about the deeper things of life. Who is God? How, how am I doing with my priorities? Um, you know, what, what matters to me most? I mean, just sit, spend some time to think about all that stuff. Um, and make sure the day has some party elements to it as well. You know, find, find the things that are refreshing and life-giving. And do those on this day. And I'll fire you if you don't do it. I mean, can you imagine somebody saying that? Like, you must do this. I think you'd be pretty excited about that if you had a boss like that. So what if your creator tells you to do it? You know, the one who knows you, who made you, who knows what's best for you, who knows that we'll fill our lives with such busyness that we may get sidetracked and overwhelmed, says stop, take a break. Sabbath, Shabbat, literally means cease. Stop. I mean, that's the word. Remember to stop. You know, here's the giant stop sign. And this is God telling us we can do it. And we have to if we really want to know all these other things. Otherwise, we might forget him if we stop and don't consider and reflect. So according to the Bible, what does God do but build into the very rhythm of creation a day of worship, a day of rest, a day of celebration. He blesses the day. He says, this day is to be enjoyed. It's to be a blessing to you. And years later when Jesus came, he would reinforce this because there were a lot of rules that had kind of come up on the Sabbath, and I think probably a lot of people were dreading it at that time because it took so much preparation to make sure you didn't break the commandments that they'd actually forgotten. This whole thing was designed for you. You spend a lot of time figuring out how not to do things. You can't enjoy the things you're supposed to do. And so here we are. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for you. Not the other way around. You have the the blessing and the privilege of having a day designed knowing with the creator knowing you've got to do this. If you don't, eventually it'll be to your peril. If you do, it's going to be good. So make sure that you're observing that. It's given for your benefit. In fact, the pattern for a Sabbath is rooted in creation itself. Back in Genesis 2, 2 and 3. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, he made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating 
he had done. So the very fabric of our universe has baked into it the rhythm of setting one day aside as distinct. A God-given rhythm of one day in seven that we set aside. This is just a divine gift. You don't have to wait for your birthday once a year. Every single week, God says, here's a gift to you. The Sabbath. And if we search our hearts and make steps to observe a Sabbath rightly, our lives are going to prove dramatically. I mean, those aren't my words. It's God's. You'll know God better. You'll know the sweetness of spiritual and physical rest. You'll have something to look forward to once a week. I mean, who doesn't need something to look forward to? It's just like all the time. You're looking forward to this. It's going to be celebratory. And these are the words of God. The Sabbath was made for me and for you. And there's blessing attached to it. It's observance. And the command is, you know, remember the Sabbath day. How? By keeping it holy. You see there on that top line. Holiness refers to being set apart, distinct, other, and separate. So a Sabbath day, that one in seven rhythm, there's got to be something different and distinct about it. Something that is refreshing. There's something special going on. It's different than the rest of the days. You know, historically, uh, in our nation, when slavery was uh, the order of, of the day, uh, one day in seven, many of the slave owners, of course, were, were Christians. And they would go and they would worship. And they would tell their slaves, you're free to worship as well. Typically, they'd be worshiping in their own spaces. So it would just be slaves worshiping with each other. Now, if six days you're a slave and one day... You get to be a little bit free in terms of your expression and know what it gets a little foretaste of what it's like not to be enslaved. What do you think that service would be like if that were you? You think you'd be really, really quiet and reflective and thinking about things? Or would you be excited and full of energy and zeal? Would you rush home to be a slave again? You're going to spend as long as you want, as you can. Away from that, experiencing freedom. So enter, if you go to an all-black church, it's probably not going to happen in the same time frame that Redeemer might. Because historically speaking, they're entering again into the reality of being set free. And they know it isn't just a theory for them, being set free from bondage. Like it can be for people who've never known that kind of oppression. I've never known it. So I got a pot roast at noon to get home to. You're not going to rush to that. If it's doing somebody else's bidding. They're no freedom, right? And this is what God is saying. This is the design for us as well, no matter who we are. It's valuing, cherishing the distinct nature of this day. And I chose this in a sense. I've done uh, some thinking about this over the years as well. But it's also a bridge command between honoring God. Those are the first four are vertical. And then really, this one's actually a horizontal command as well. Because it's not just honor God, but it's think about the people in your, around you. You know, make sure that the people you have responsibility for are doing the same thing, are setting a rhythm. Don't make them work. Don't, don't put them in a position where they can't experience the rest that I've designed for you. So it's very much a bridge command if we want to honor it. And it seems key to recognizing and cherishing, I think, the other commands as well. We ought to have more time to think about how we're living and how we're treating others around us if we're actually observing this thing called Sabbath. 
Now, I've kind of distilled looking through all the, the commandments of the Sabbath again in the past and tried to look at when God talks about the Sabbath and why we're observing it and come up with three principles that I've probably shared before for some of you, but I thought it's easy to think of work um, because it's sort of a command about not working in a sense, but with a C at the end. So it's like Mark with a C if you've ever seen that meme about Starbucks. You know, somebody goes and says, it's Mark with a C, like my name is. And then the Starbucks person writes C-A-R-K on it. You've got to think about that a little bit. But th- this one's work with a C too, work. So three, three things, Wor- work um, is worship, rest, and celebrate. So the first thing that we do, I, th- I would suggest all these commands are talking about worship. What do you do to observe this command to flourish? Well, worship. There's all kinds of statements in the Old Testament. In fact, the very reason they're being led from bondage into freedom, he says, is so they can go and worship me in the desert. I mean, there's an object here to, to recognizing that God is their creator and he is their redeemer. He has set them free. And we do that in worship. And one of the reasons that uh, he's calling a people to do that is because when you do it in a collective sort of way, you have what I would call something like a common or shared story. I mean, this is uh, why I think the local church is, is good because you're attaching yourself to people over a longer term and you enter into that story. You're hearing the same message, you know, whether it's good or bad or long or short. It's the same message that you're hearing when you're gathered together. We're singing the same songs regardless of what your opinion about the songs themselves may be. You're singing them with each other. You're saying the same words. You're listening to the same prayers. You know the same ups and downs as a local church. We enter each other's stories. You're praying for the same people suffering physical and emotional trials. You know, when people lose a life or something, we, we have a context for mourning that, at least on some level. We rub shoulders. We see kids grow up. You know, wow, when did you get so big? Is a statement about knowing them when they were small. When did you get so old? It's about statement about knowing them when they were young. We learn and we grow together and we rejoice and we mourn with each other. We enter relationship with each other. And this is part of the design of a Sabbath is gathering together, entering into a shared story as a people. Historically, cosmically, yes, but even locally, individually. You can't know everybody, but we can know some. And that's part of what we do as we gather together for worship. Uh, the, this other idea is that it actually is a personal expression of faith too when you enter on some level, at least openness to entering into that story. It's a Sabbath to the Lord, your God. Not their God, or his, yours, your God. It's a personal relationship sort of language here. Weekly worship is actually a sign, Exodus thirty-one sixteen, of the relationship between God and his people and of your entering into that relationship. It marks us as belonging to God. So when we neglect that, in the way we look no different than anyone else around us. And of course, no one's taking notes. Hey, did you go to church? Did you go to church? Like your next door neighbor. But at the same time, you are physically going. You're relocating. You're putting yourself into a context. It's a sign. But the sign needs to go further than skin deep, right? You can do that. You can fill the pews and be very, very far from God. That's what happened all the time in Jesus' day, too, with the Pharisees who made all these laws about the Sabbath. But they weren't close to God. So you can be here. It's not just being here. It's being here and allowing God to do his work in your heart, letting him shape and and cultivate us. And sometimes we feel distant. I get that. But 
you need to keep going through the motions. But here it is. Jesus makes it so very clear that we need to be worshiping God in community and it's personal. So that's one thing, worship. I encourage you to do that. And then the second thing is rest. Um, all these commandments we have are, are examples of the Sabbath involve rest as well. God's built 52 days of rest into our schedules. And rest means rest. Like if you're, it's not stir, stir rest. <laughs> it's get rid of the stir. <laughs> it's just rest. You know, I mean, look, phase of life, I get it. You know, you're like, if, if you've got young kids, especially, you're like, hey, it's a day of rest. Stop talking. <laughs> you know, stop asking me for things. I mean, there are seasons of life when it's just easier to control than others. But even so, it may look a little different. I don't know. There's other people around you. You're not the only people who've done this. Ask those who've gone before you. What did you do? Oh, yeah, it's a blur. I don't remember. Or they may say things like, this is what we did, you know, and we wrestled. And yeah, I mean, that's why we have community as well. But if you have that measure of control on some, just build in rest. This may be it. This may be it right here. Like, this is, this is what you do to get rest. And we do have an alternative, te alternative teaching time, you know, for the kids. That might be the only time you feel like quietness, even if it's me talking to you. At least it seems like an adult conversation. And that's kind of nice. Um, rest. And I would say, in terms of a principle that's driving this, on this day, it's kind of strange that oh, the G is disconnected from everything else. What up, G? <laughs> there, too. Rest. Avoid those things that take away from rest to the extent you can and pursue those things that give it to you. I'd say that's the principle. I mean, you know yourself. God's created you uniquely. Um, I don't know. May, you've got to find out what gives you rest. And don't feel guilty if, you, if somebody is at the end of the day, if you feel like, I was not productive today, then good job. That's the design of it. And for those of us who are productivity-minded, this may be a training time to say, i got to slow down. Because I was designed to rest. What is that rest? It's going to be unique for you. There may be some common things. I think our gathering is one, but then what that looks like may change. For example, maybe it's a leisurely preparation of a meal. Maybe that gives you rest. This is the one day you can do it. That would stress me out. I'd be stressed big time. I'm going to do that. But what about you? You need to find that and discover that. That's where the beauty of some of the freedom of what this looks like comes in, knowing how we're designed. And the question you have to ask is, am I resting? Am I refreshed? You know, Hebrews envisions the Sabbath day in the New Testament as a foretaste of the eternal rest that we're going to have. So start practicing. Now, the problem is that our culture often associates busyness and activity with success. And so this is one day when we just step aside and say, you know, I'm going to recalibrate. And in some senses, maybe learn to trust God. Because it doesn't feel like you're being productive. Now, I, I've shared before, when I went to college, it was six days a week. They had Saturday classes. They've since stopped that foolishness. But I had, I had 8 a.m.